Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O' Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. Y'all, it's my favorite month of the year. So not only is it my birthday month, but it's also, of course, the month of Christmas. I think I love this month regardless, even if it wasn't my birthday. Now, you know all that trash I've been talking about how we go to Halloween and then we go straight to Christmas and skip over Thanksgiving? Mm Mm-hmm. Well... This year, I'm a little ill-prepared. So in my heart, I started to celebrate Christmas in early November. But in reality, y'all, I don't have a Christmas tree. I haven't purchased a tree. We don't have any lights or decorations up either. But I have done the bulk of my holiday shopping. Thank God for Cyber Monday because I got it all out of the way at that point. Okay, well, this week, several people are planning for a new baby for the new year and have questions about how to prepare if they desire pregnancy via IVF. So in order to plan for a baby in 2023, I thought we'd discuss the checklist now. That way, we'll walk into the new year fully prepared. All right, so here we go. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization, and it's a process of fertilization where an egg and a sperm are combined in vitro, meaning outside of the body via a lab to create an embryo, okay, or the beginnings of life. Then once the embryo or the tiny baby made up of only a few cells reaches day four to five, it is transferred into the patient or the person who's carrying the baby's uterus or womb. There, it continues to grow as a natural pregnancy would. For the egg and sperm, these can be the patient's egg and the husband's uh, sperm or the significant other sperm, or the egg and sperm can be donated. Now, this is different than intrauterine insemination or IUI because the patient uses their own egg and waits for ovulation with IUI. Then the sperm is injected through the cervix. This is not the same and doesn't carry the same risk as IVF. So we won't discuss IUI during this talk. If you want to learn more about pregnancy options to include natural egg freezing, IUI, IVF, just basically the gamut, go back and listen to the the episode with Dr. Jones. That's from season two. It was a good one. And I encourage you all to check that one out. But we won't go into that. We're talking about preparing specifically for IVF. I think nowadays we talk about IVF like we're going to the grocery store, right? To buy milk. Like, hmm, I think I might have a baby via IVF one day. 
But IVF is a process and it can be very mentally and physically draining. So I always encourage my friends who say to say this to make sure that they are one sure that that's what they want to do and that they have plenty of support lined up because you know, I, I was an older mom when I got pregnant. You know, it could have been difficult for me to get pregnant. Thankfully, it wasn't, but it could have been. And I have friends that are my age now who aren't married and who who still want children. And so they are exploring egg freezing, which means that if you're going to freeze your eggs, that means you're going to have to use them later. You don't have to, but that means that you freeze them to do IVF later. Okay. So I always tell people like, let's make sure you know what all that entails. Now, when I'm talking to my uh, friends uh, and discussing options, uh, when I'm talking to my friends, I talk a little bit different than when I'm talking to my patients. So when I talk to my patients, I review the reasons to get IVF. Okay. So People say, oh, I have a baby via IVF. I mean, just because you're 40 doesn't mean that you need a baby via IVF. You can still have a natural pregnancy if you are 40, okay? That doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to. But some people may decide to get IVF if you've had any of these things. One, if you have absence of the fallopian tube. So if you have bilateral hydrosalpinxis, um, meaning those tubes are dilated with fluid in them. Um, it may be difficult for the egg to mobilize down the tube to get to fer- get to the point of the tube to get fertilized. And once fertilized, it may be hard for it to go into the uterus. So usually if you have a hydrosalpinx or dilated fluid in the tubes, a reproductive endocrinologist would basically re- recommend removing those tubes and then getting IVF, okay? There's been studies that show it's more successful to remove those tubes and get IVF versus just getting the IVF with the hydrocelpine in place. Um, if you have endometriosis, meaning the lining of your uterus, okay, sheds every month, that is endometrial tissue, okay? If that tissue is outside of the uterus, and we really do need to do an episode of endometriosis, but um, if that tissue is outside of the uterus, it can implant on the tubes, it can implant on the ovaries, it can implant in the pelvis, it can implant on the bowel, and it can shed where it is. So people have very painful um, bowel movements or may have very painful menstrual cycles because it's trying to shed wherever it's stuck to, okay? It can also create a lot of scarring um, and, and, and difficulty for the tubes to be patent or open enough for the egg to, uh, to go through. And it's also a state of high inflammation. So people with endometriosis can have issues with fertility as well. And so if you have that, um, then IVF may be an option for you. If you have ovarian dysfunction, like you have early premature ovarian failure. Okay. So if you have uh, menopause, go through menopause and you're 40, I mean, that is, you know, sometimes a very difficult situation. Your ovaries aren't working. You may need IVF to get pregnant or even a a, a gestational carrier or surrogate, aka surrogate. If you have male factor infertility, meaning your husband or significant other's sperm uh, isn't swimming or the sperm count is low, that will be a reason that you can't get pregnant, although everything is normal with your eggs. So that your IVF may be an option for you. If you have unexplained infertility, like you've been trying and trying and trying to get pregnant, you just cannot get pregnant. IVF is is uh, has a higher success rate and a more surefire way to get pregnant. Um, recurrent pregnancy loss. So you can get pregnant, but you can't stay pregnant. Okay. So you have uh, 
you know, three or more first trimester miscarriages, then IVF may be an option for you. Um, if you have a genetic disorder, so your family is a carrier uh, for fragile X syndrome, and you want to make sure that that your baby doesn't have fragile X syndrome, well, you can do IVF and then you can genetically test all of them to see if that child has the affected gene. Okay, and then you can select an embryo that does not have the affected gene. That that way, you know for sure that your baby will not have fragile X or whatever the disorder is that runs in your family. If you have an absent uterus, so some people are born without a uterus, but they have ovaries. And so you could get IVF, meaning retrieve your eggs and then um, have a gestational carrier, aka a surrogate, carry the baby for you. Okay. Now, all of those are very common options, uh, common reasons to get IVF, but there are other reasons. Like this is not an end-all be-all list. Everybody gets IVF for different reasons. And if you have issues getting pregnant naturally, then always talk to your OBGYN to see like, is this an option for me? Should I be referred to a reproductive endocrinologist to see if IVF is, is something that can be done for me? Now, there are criteria for IVF. So it's not like, you know, anybody can walk off the street and go get IVF, right? You have to, we have to make sure you're safe doing it. Okay. So this is why we're doing this show to make sure that you know what's on the list and to make sure you're prepared when you go in there and not like sort of caught off. Oh, nobody told me I couldn't do that because of this. This information is taken from University of Colorado, as well as IU in Indiana University, their reproductive endocrinology departments. This is not uh, a definitive, but this is general national guidelines um, altered based on those universities. And these are the things that I found in common. The patient must meet the age criteria. Okay, so there is an age criteria for IVF. So if you're using your own eggs and you'll see it on the website called oocytes, oocytes just means eggs. You have a better chance of success if you are less than age 40, okay? Now, I'm about to be 40 on Christmas. So I'm looking like, ooh, 40, right? So less than age 40 or 42 if you have regular cycles. So they'll give you some wiggle room to 42. And usually it's recommended that you start IVF at least six weeks before the 43rd birthday, okay? The chances of success are higher. Now, mind you, I know patients who have used their own eggs older than this. So this is not an end-all, be-all cutoff, but these are just general guidelines that are recommended, okay? Now, if you're using donor eggs, the patient, not the donor, but the person carrying the pregnancy may be up to their 50th birthday, okay? Even if your own embryos, they must be used by your 50th birthday. So let's say you got an egg retrieval at age 38. Well, we want you to use those by age 40, okay? But if you're if you're using a donor egg, then we want you to use them by age 50. If you're using a donor embryo, okay, meaning the baby's already been been made, okay, with the sperm, then we want you to use them by your 50th birthday. Eggs by 42, embryos by 50, general rule, okay? Now, if using a gestational carrier or a surrogate, then single parents must be less than age 55 or one parent in the couple must be less than age 55. I don't really know about that. Don't ask me about that cutoff. That's just a general cutoff. But, you know, I'm assuming something about being healthy enough 
to actually be able to interact and care for a child. 55 is the, the, the general cutoff, okay? And embryos must be made using at least one of the parents' gametes, okay? Either, when we say gametes, we mean egg or sperm, okay? That's a general term for egg or sperm, okay? Those are gametes, your eggs or sperm. So women have eggs, men have sperm, okay? So one of the parents has to be, has have genes in that baby and the baby has to be, uh, one of the parents has to be less than age 55. That is also a general uh, rule that is not like a line in the sand, okay? But that is the general thing that's recommended. All patients or couples using donor egg, sperm, or gestational carrier must go through a psychological evaluation before IVF. Psychologists or psychiatrists, if they have concerns, then this could either delay or deny you going through the IVF process because it is a very, uh, you know, um, it can be anxiety provoking and very stressful to go through IVF. You know, you're waiting, you're doing a cycle, you have hormones that you have to inject. So you have to pretty much be very stable and have a good support system to uh, be a candidate for IVF. So you will go through a psychological evaluation. You must also be in good physical health, okay? You can't have untreated chronic illnesses. Like to me, this is very self-explanatory, but for a lot of people, they're like, why? Why can't I have diabetes and go through IVF? Well, it's not that you can't have you can't have diabetes, is that you can't have diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C of 10, right? We want you to be controlled, okay? We don't want you to get pregnant with a chronic illness and then that pregnancy worsen your disease. If you have kidney disease, we don't want to force you to, you know, your blood volume doubles in pregnancy. So if your organs are already not functioning, a pregnancy can push you over the edge. So we need to make sure that you are healthy enough to be able to endure the pregnancy and be there to take care of that baby after the pregnancy. Your BMI has to be less than 50 for most programs. Less than 50. Now, different RAI clinics have different criteria. I've heard of 45 before. I've heard of 50. So make sure you know what the criteria is for the REI clinic, but generally speaking, less than 50. Now, they will do the infertility evaluation for you with a BMI over 50, but they will encourage you to lose weight and probably set you up with a nutritionist to make sure that you're on track to losing weight. And then once you hit that goal weight, then they'll proceed uh, with IVF. So just to keep that in mind. Now, if you're diabetic, like we talked about before, we want your you to be under control. So a, a hemoglobin A1C, that is the, the lab that we draw that tells us the average blood sugar level you've had over the past three months, okay? Now, a blood sugar level, uh, hemoglobin A1C, six or above, usually means you're diabetic. People that are not diabetic have an A1C less than six. People that are pre-diabetic have an A1C between 5.7 and 6%. When you get to hemoglobin A1Cs of 8%, that's associated with a significant risk for having babies with heart defects and brain defects. So why get you pregnant? And then we know that you have an increased risk of having a baby with some trouble. The goal for proceeding with uh, with, uh, IVF through REI is a hemoglobin A1C that's 6.5% or below. Now, if you come to me for preconception counseling, I'm going to go by the ACOG guidelines, which is the American College of OBGYNs, and we want it at 6%. 
Okay, ideal is 6%. We will settle between 6 and 7%, but the goal is A1C of 6%. That tells us that you are taking care of yourself. You know how to handle your blood sugar. We've gotten you on a proper regimen, and it's okay because you've proven that you can handle your blood sugar pre-pregnancy. So we know you can adjust for during pregnancy. And all that is to avoid you having increased risk of having a baby with some trouble, okay? Anomalies, big babies, high risk for C-section, high risk for the baby having childhood onset diabetes if you are uncontrolled in pregnancy, okay? So we want to prevent that and make sure you control before the pregnancy. Now you have to have STD screening. These two universities say within the past five years, okay, most REIs I've worked with will do STD screening as soon as you do your evaluation, right? Because you don't know who's creeping. You just don't know, okay? And so we trust you, but we got to know, right? We don't want to uh, do uh, procedures and then we are seeding STDs into your pelvis that can cause, you know, obviously pelvic inflammatory disease. So we want to make sure that you're STD free. But generally, we want... STD screening within the, the last five years. And if you have a new partner, then you need to be re-screened, okay? Also, if there's any infidelity, you would need to be re-screened. Now, don't forget, you will need to keep up with your regular checkups. Like, don't forget your mammogram if you're 40 or over. Y'all, I'm about to be 40. Oh my goodness, I'm about to be 40. So January, I'm gonna schedule my first mammogram. I might have to do a live <laughs> I have to do a live and walk y'all through how this first mammogram went. But um, don't forget the mammograms. Don't forget you have to have your pelvic exam, you know, every year. And you should have a pap smear every three or five years, depending on what, how old you are. Um, your thyroid screening, your cholesterol screening, you know, all of your age appropriate things. If you're 50, you need a colonoscopy. All those things. Don't forget those just normal things that you should have done. So you need to be up to date on those. And if you went to an REI um, or you did a preconception consult with an MFM like me, we're going to go through that checklist and make sure you get that done before we uh, will sign off and say, hey, I think this person is appropriate for um, an IVF pregnancy. Okay. So now that we are done learning a little bit more about what's a good optimal candidate for IVF, Let's go to some cases and questions. Our first case is a 40-year-old who presents for preconception counseling. She has never been married and is no longer with her long-term boyfriend, who she was with for 10 years. She froze her eggs three years ago and now desires IVF. She has a history of obesity with a BMI of 42. She has CHTN on lisinopril and has a history of anxiety. She presents for preconception counseling for approval to proceed with IVF. Going through this case, she's 40. Great. Um, she's froze, froze her own eggs. Okay, great. Remember we said if you're using your own eggs, we want you to be 40 or with regular cycles, 42. Okay. And that's not an a end-all be-all, but that's what we want. She has a BMI 42, so that's okay. But I would still encourage her to remain active, adjust her diet, to eat clean Lean and green diet, okay? Weight loss of even 10 pounds is helpful with reducing your risk of diabetes and pregnancy and preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure and vascular damage. So anybody that has a BMI over 40, if you're if you're obese, I'm going to, obese meaning over 30, okay? But specifically people that are over 40, I always encourage them to lose at least 10 pounds before the pregnancy. Um, but that's not a reason for me to tell her not to get pregnant, all right? 
chronic hypertension on lisinopril, you got to get off the lisinopril before you try to get pregnant. Okay, lisinopril can is known to cause birth defects. Okay, all ACE inhibitors are. And so this is a blood pressure medicine that's common. It's first line. But when you have a woman that's of childbearing age or trying to get pregnant, we don't want you on it. So we want you off of any ACE inhibitor or ARB. Okay, if you're on those class of drugs, we want you off of that. There'll be lisinopril or losartan. Anything that ends in pril or sartan, you don't want to be on, okay, while you're conceiving. So we switch her to something like labetalol and nifedipine. Those are calcium channel blocker, beta blocker. Those are much safer in pregnancy. And and labetalol is a specific beta blocker. Um, some beta, beta blockers like atenolol can cause the baby to be growth restricted. So we would prefer labetalol over the others. But, but uh, you know, different people are controlled with different things. We don't want you on lisinopril because we know that that can cause some some real uh, damage. So I'd want you off of that for a couple months before you proceed, um, just to make sure we have you off of that and on a regimen that that's controlling you before you get pregnant. The other thing I would want to know is this history of anxiety, right? Like, are we controlled with our anxiety? Are we on medicines? So I would want to review your medicines for anxiety to make sure that they are safe for pregnancy. Usually we're using the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, because Zoloft, or even like Wellbutrin for uh, anxiety during the pregnancy. If you're on that class, that's relatively safe, but I would want to know exactly what you're on to switch you to something a little bit more appropriate. And then obviously you, I want to make sure you're getting regular um, psychiatric care uh, for your, for your anxiety. So you, do you see a psychiatrist, a, a group therapy, a psychologist, something, how are you coping with your anxiety? Because adding the stress of a baby can really rev up your anxiety, okay? Because babies are stressful. And when you don't have sleep, that that can cause even more stress. And when you have a newborn baby, you're not gonna have too much sleep. You're gonna be waking up, of course, every couple of hours to, to feed the baby, whether you're breastfeeding or bottle feeding. So I would wanna make sure that from an anxiety uh, and psychological standpoint that you are stable. So once we get you on a stable regimen for your anxiety and go over those medicines and switch your medicines, switch your lisinopril to something a little bit more pregnancy safe, and you're maintained on that a couple months, I think that it would be safe for you to continue with the pregnancy. The thing that I also want to make sure is that you have a good support system because it seems like you haven't been married. You were with this man for 10 years that, you know, you at some point decided to get to freeze your eggs while you're in a relationship with them. So do you have the psychological support or are you going to do this on your own? Okay, so make sure that you have some support system. And I'm not saying that you have to have a man to go through IVF because you don't. Um, You don't have to have any significant other. You do not. But you do need a village. Okay, friends that can come with you, somebody that can check on you, somebody that can take you to and from appointments, that kind of thing. Uh, Make sure you have a good support system there. But um, after we get all of those things lined up, I think you'll be a really good candidate for IVF. Um, And I think that you would, the next step would be to be referred to a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist once all of those things are controlled. And of course, they're going to do a workup. But the reason I would go straight to IVF is because If you don't have a partner and you really want to have a baby, obviously the older you get, the harder it is to conceive. So I don't think that you should delay if you really want a child. 
the case pearl for this case is all medications should be assessed for safety in pregnancy before attempting to conceive or proceeding with IVF. All right, medical intern, what's our next uh, case or question? This one says, Dr. Plenty, thank you so much for always being real and answering questions. I'm a little disheartened because my husband and I really want to proceed with IVF, but my reproductive endocrinologist said, I can't until I lose weight. I'm 27 and healthy with no medical problems. We need IVF due to my husband's low sperm count. The only issue is I have a BMI of 51.5. We voiced an understanding that due to obesity, I would be a high-risk pregnancy, but I don't understand why my weight is that much of a factor if I have no health conditions. Is my REI being too strict? I feel like this guideline is discriminatory. Okay. I know that we don't like to talk about weight, right? I don't like to talk about weight because I'm fluffier. Okay. Now I look good, but real talk, I am on the obese side. Okay. And nobody likes to say they are obese because we're curvy and we're thick with it. Right. And my man's not complaining. So I must be all right. But realistically, the heavier we are, the more likely we are to have health problems, okay? Obesity is linked to a lot of adverse health issues. We know people that are obese have a higher risk of having issues in their pregnancy, okay? Including a higher risk of getting gestational diabetes, a higher risk of preeclampsia, a higher risk of needing a C-section for delivery, and a higher risk of having a baby that has some structural defects, okay? So just in general, for pregnancy, people that are morbidly obese do have a higher risk of poor outcomes. But specifically, when it comes to IVF, one, there are certain regimens that use to stimulate your ovaries to proliferate, you know, or mature the follicles for retrieval. Okay. So meaning we want to grow the egg so that we can stick a needle in there and get the egg. Okay. People that are obese have lower stimulation rates. Estrogen is made in fat cells. Okay. If you have too much fat, you have a higher level of estrogen that can honestly negative feedback and suppress your estrogen. Okay. So we want to make sure that we don't have that going on. So we want your BMI to be lower so that when we stimulate you, you actually are stimulated for those follicles to actually mature. Um, secondly, being able to access the ovaries, okay? It is an ultrasound guided procedure. We have to insert a needle into the ovary to get the egg. If you have too much adipose tissue, even people that are have BMIs less than 50, depending on the distribution of fat, it can make it very hard to get to the ovary to access it, okay? So we need you to be on a, a little thinner to be able to have a needle that's long enough to actually get safely to the ovaries. The other thing is some people that are obese may have things like sleep apnea, okay? If you're on the table and you're under sedation and your oxygen saturation drops to 80%, well, we got to wake you up, okay? We can't have your airway collapsing on us. We need to make sure you are breathing. And the heavier you are, the more likely you are to have issues with um with sedation. Okay. So it's not because they're being mean. 
okay, or discriminatory. There are these guidelines for a reason. And even some people that have a BMI of less than 50, 45, or even 42, can it can be difficult to access the ovaries, okay? So this is all about trying to make sure that we have an optimal person so that we don't cause any injury to the ovary. There are big vessels feeding the ovaries. I mean, in those big vessels, if they bleed, you can bleed. Okay. So we don't want to accidentally muck around and poke those vessels. We don't want to cause any injury to your ovaries. So that's why it's important that your BMI is less. I understand you're like, I don't have any medical problems. Okay. Except for obesity. Obesity is considered a medical problem. I'm with you. Okay. I'm obese, but that is a medical problem. And you losing weight will help with a lot of things, help reduce your risk of those adverse pregnancy outcomes we just talked about. It'll help with access to the ovaries and it also will help give you a little bit more energy to run around after a newborn, okay? Um, It'll help maintain your weight after the baby gets here, okay? Weight loss before pregnancy can help you with uh, weight loss after pregnancy, okay? Keep getting a regimen down normally. That way you can stay active throughout the pregnancy. So this is not discriminatory, These are guidelines for a reason, um, and I understand your frustration, but the good thing is you are healthy and you are young. You have time to lose. You only have to lose a little weight. You're 51.5. You have time to lose a little weight, and you have plenty of time to have many IVF cycles and have many children. So let's, you know, I know it's it's disappointing when you can't have things on your own timeline, but just rest assured, this is for a reason is just to keep you safe, um, to make sure that you don't have any complications during the procedure or during the pregnancy. So stick it out. You can do it. Just start doing a little bit more activity, incorporate 150 minutes of exercise a week. And it doesn't have to be heavy, just like walking around the blocks uh, after you eat or not sitting down for 15, 20 minutes after each meal, small things. Okay. Don't drink your calories, no soft drinks, no juices, drink water. You can add the little Dasani drops or crystal light to it, but don't drink your calories. Making very subtle and small lifestyle changes can really help you lose a significant amount of weight, um, you know, rather quickly. So I would say give yourself three to six months and actually like really adjust your diet. And I'm sure that you'll be at a BMI of less than 50 in no time. All right, medical intern, do we have any email, any other email questions? Yes. This one says, Dr. Plenty, my husband and I had three early pregnancy losses, which are believed to be associated with our genetic carrier status. We were counseled about the option to do IVF. However, I heard it is rather expensive. What is the average cost of IVF and how do normal middle-class couples fund it? IVF can be expensive. It can definitely be expensive, but you have to you have to ask yourself, how much would you pay to have a family? Okay. And if it's something you really want, you will definitely find a way to make happen. If you're going to freeze your eggs, five to $10,000, it's usually the cost of egg freezing plus an annual storage fee that you would have to pay. Okay. Now, if you're talking about IVF specifically, meaning fertilization process, egg retrieval fertilization process, and embryo transfer. It depends on if you get genetic testing or not. IVF cycles, usually about $15,000. If you get genetic testing, that can add another five to $10,000. You're talking about anywhere from 15 to $25,000. A lot of people do a lot of things 
to get IVF. Some people's insurances cover IVF. Okay. If you work for an employer that covers it, more power to you. I would always ask that before I start my next job. Okay. Or go to your employer and just see what's in the policy in terms of your healthcare coverage. Second, a lot of uh, clinics will let you make payments on it. A lot of people use their refunds from like income tax to do the IVF. A lot of people use monies they make from the sale of homes to get IVF. And then there are IVF plans, okay? So you have different plans, like futurefamily.com has a plan where you can basically invest so much a month towards your future IVF. Okay, it's almost like doing your own savings. You know, you say, okay, I'm gonna save 500 bucks a month and put that towards IVF. People do that. Like they open separate accounts to do IVF, okay? But the most common thing is that you will be in IVF clinic and make payments over a certain amount of time. And then once you get to a certain percentage of that payment, of that total cost, then they will go ahead and proceed with the procedure. A lot of clinics want you to get to 100% before they proceed. Some want you to get to 50. It depends on the clinic. The other thing you need to look at is how many cycles do you get with that? Some clinics, you're paying that per cycle, okay? If if you have a transfer and the transfer doesn't take, then you're you're going to pay another fifteen dollars to $20,000, okay? Um, some clinics will allow you two or three cycles if those cycles aren't successful. It depends on the clinic, okay, and the package that's arranged, okay? It all depends on where you are, which clinic you find. I always encourage people to interview the physician you're going to use, see what their practice policy is, but don't be afraid to get a second opinion, you know, interview other uh, other physicians in their clinics to see what their options are, and then do a pros and cons. Like, hey, for this person, I get two embryo transfers for the price of one over here. I mean, this is this is normal. It's a big investment that you're making, but that sacrifice is definitely worth it. I tell people the same thing when they talk about adopting. Um, you know, adoption is expensive. You know, adoption is more expensive sometimes than even IVF. Um, in the state of Texas, adoption, the average cost is about $55,000. It is expensive. Now you are doing, you know, making payments over a period of time. Okay. So it's not like you're doing one big lump sum, but the cost of the legal fees and the documents add up over time. So you have to realize, you know, going eyes wide open that adopting or having your own child via IVF can be expensive. But let me tell you, you sit down and you figure out a way to make it happen. Um, some people go through their churches. Um, there are different organizations that do help with funding for people that are uh, need IVF due to infertility. There are different insurance plans that can cover IVF. And then you can get creative yourself. You know, ask your family to help to chip in if you are, you know, if your family has the means to, to help you. Ask your, uh, you know, your church if they have the means to help you. So different people will help if they know that you need help. Um, or if you work a job that has bonuses, save your bonus. If you get income tax uh, refund, save that. If you have equity in your home, you know, people take out second mortgages. I mean, people do all kinds of creative things to have babies. And I agree, it is expensive. And if you're in the middle class, I know how that is. 
it's like, okay, I'm balancing these bills and now I have to throw in $15,000. Like, I don't know if I can afford that, but don't look at it as paying one big lump sum. Just go explore your options. And the REI clinics know some of the resources that you can utilize to get this done. So ask them like, hey, be, be straightforward. Hey, this is expensive for us. How do people fund this? And they will give you a list of options. The other thing besides, you know, your insurance and asking for help, some people take out loans to do IVF, okay? Some people, just like you would take, borrow a loan for a new car, you would borrow a loan for IVF. People do that. They take personal loans out uh, to get IVF. So don't think that everybody just has it sitting in the bank. People are creative, whether that's taking out loans or selling, you know, real estate. Like people do things to make sure they can afford these procedures. Okay. And at the end of the day, you get a baby, you know, and these little babies, they're worth it. They are worth it. If you want that in your family, please don't let finances be the reason that you don't have a child. All right, medical intern. I think that that was probably our last question. Is she shaking her head? Yes. So thanks so much for listening to Pregnancy Pearls podcast. I hope you've learned more about uh, being an optimal candidate for IVF. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and comment. And the best compliment you can give me, besides actually saying it in the comments, is to share the podcast with your friends. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or a unique situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. You can also check out the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash pregnancy pearls with Dr. Plenty for more quick talks about pregnancy complication. And don't forget the website, drnicoleplenty.com for your free downloadables. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.